All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. We've been looking at the fifth chapter. Uh, chapters five through seven are what is known as the Beatitudes. It's also known as the Sermon on the Mount because, as you can see with the picture on the screen that I took, uh, was it two years ago now, uh, on the side of the Galilee, as you can see, it's very beautiful. Uh, Right around that area is where Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount. And remember the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, taking our time through this because this is one of the most significant portions, I believe, of the New Testament, is Jesus speaking directly to us concerning our attitudes and the behavior that ought to be exemplified, that we ought to be an example, an ambassador for Jesus, right? And so in that, he, he gives this sermon to his disciples. And I'll be honest with you, today it's going to sting a little bit because there's some really, uh, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. He doesn't mince words and he doesn't need to. And the thing is, is we are all very much aware of the things that are going on in our own hearts, things that have been going on in the culture for a very, very long time. The devil has done a very great job at convincing people uh, to walk away from God and to follow their own hearts. And do you realize that when you follow your own heart, you're really not following God's heart at all. You're just following the very lowest nature, the, the nature that we were born with. Yes, we were born with a sin nature. And when we follow our own hearts without any regard to God or his word, then we are operating on the very basis level. And we are apt to get in trouble. And most of us in this room, perhaps all of us, I'm willing to say probably all of us, can attest to that because we had time in the world. I know that I had 24 years of my life before I came to Christ that I proved God's word to be true because I made a complete mess of my life thinking that I knew best, thinking that from experience and maybe some others and the advice that other people gave me, even older people, that somehow I could do it right. Somehow I could be good enough to enter the kingdom of God. But the Bible says that all are all have sinned and come short of the glory of God because we all have a sin nature. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus and to us this morning, you must be born again. And it's very simple, really. We were born with an old nature that has expressed itself in really horrible ways. But we need a new nature. And you can receive that new nature by simply asking God to forgive you of all of your sins, believing that Jesus died on the cross, that his blood on the cross was sufficient, the very blood of God making atonement for you and I so that we would never see death or hell, but that he would take our place. And he did. He was the intermediary between us and God. Jesus Christ. And he bore that penalty so that we would not. It's really that simple. And when we confess our sin and ask God to come into our life, he will. If you're sincere, he's going to take up residence in your heart. And guess what? Now you are a child of God. You don't have to go through a bunch of loops and jump through rings of fire in the, in the church to somehow get into heaven. You know, it's like it's, very, it's much simpler than that. If you're honest, all you got to do is simply ask and be willing to acknowledge your sin. And to believe in Christ, everything that he said, everything that he did, everything that he stood for. If you can do that, then welcome to the kingdom of God because God is not going to leave you. And your experience, don't get hung up on your experience because some people have a dramatic uh, conversion. Other people, they just kind of knew and they know and there was nothing dramatic. Don't get hung up on all those things. The main thing is that you believe in Jesus and then get into his word, get into a Bible study, come to the church, be involved in the ministry here. Come on Thursday nights and Sunday mornings as you are, Sunday evenings, and get built up and encouraged. Learn about who this God is and how much he loves you. When I came in 1995, I walked into these doors. It was Good Friday, 1995. And I knew that I was home, and I never left. I literally came to probably every service after that, except when I was sick or on vacation. I was here every single time. 
And I've been growing, and I know God wants to grow you. But see, this whole idea of issues of the heart, and that's why it's so important, because as children of God, if you are a child of God, these things we really need to look at. We can't ignore them. We can't push them under the rug. We have to, especially now in our culture, in our world, in the history of our country right now that is in a very desperate, desperate place. This world needs to see a church on fire again. Not walking around in judgment and yelling at people and telling them that they got to do this and you got to do that and just browbeating them to death. That's not going to get the job done. You know what would be better? For us just to be smiling and enjoying our God (laughs) and being an example. And people are going to take notice. They're going to be like, how can you be smiling? How can you have any kind of assurance when everything is going to pot? And you can say, well, I know where I'm going. What do you mean you know where you're going? Well, I know I'm going to heaven. Well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, because I believe in Jesus. Didn't he say, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life? I believe that. Do you believe that? Well, if you believe that, then, you know, I got reason to have a big smile like the Cheshire cat. I've got reason to be joyful. And so do you. Smile. Everybody, one, two, three. I'd love to take a picture of that because that's awesome. You and I, we have the greatest inheritance that the world could ever have. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a hope for heaven. We have this blessed hope that any time now, hopefully this morning before I'm even done, right now would be good actually, for the Lord to return for his church. And do you know that you're going up? And you're going to have a new body and you're going to live with him for eternity. And then you're coming back in his second coming. Does that excite you? This earth that we currently live on, you're going to spend another thousand years on it. I hope you're ready for that. But you're going to have a new body. No more sickness. No more cancer. No more knees that need to be replaced. No more hips that need to be replaced. No more mental illness. No no more depression. No more tears. No more crying anymore. Because Jesus will be on this earth for a thousand years. And it gets even better than that. After that, he dissolves this current heavens and earth and creates a new heavens and an earth. And you and I are going to inhabit new Jerusalem that he's prepared a place for us. He's been preparing it since the day he ascended. He says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. He's been preparing it. He knows exactly what's going to bless you. And he's preparing that place for you. And we are going to live, that'll be the eternal state. Do you understand? I don't know about you, but I I could never deserve this. I could never, ever deserve the love and the things that God has for me and for you. I could never deserve it. But you know what? I don't have to try and work it up. I don't. I can't. I simply receive it with a big tears in my eyes saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in my life and what you're doing how could I ever repay you? And he's like, Rob, I've already paid the price. Just worship me. Just worship me and give me your life. Let me do with it more abundantly than you could ever imagine. And I'm starting to understand now, little by little, the great things that he has for me, the great things that he has for you, and it's just the beginning. It's just the warm-up act because he's got more to do and more things he's going to do in and through my life and in your life. Now, everybody smile. (laughs) I'm glad you're smiling because what I'm going to share with you is going to break your heart. Okay, so, and it is. Let's look. We we looked at, uh, really, verses 17 and 18 and 19 and a little bit of 20. And what I'd like to do is we're going to take communion today. So I just want to start right off from the very beginning. Let's look at verse 17. Notice what Jesus says. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law, or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And if you remember last week, we looked at all the different scriptures, and there were many more, okay? We just scratched the surface of how Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. And so he did. He didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he says, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. All the things that have been spoken will become fulfilled. And it brings us to verse 19, where we're going to start right now. Notice what he said. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
Notice, least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them. In other words, who, who is obedient to those things and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That means it's possible to be a believer and really not being the greatest example. But is that the place that you really want to be? I mean, some will say, well, at least I'm saved. Well, that, that's, that's true. But you know what? Why flirt with the border? Why flirt with the edge? You know, when you have an assurance of salvation, it is the greatest thing, the greatest feeling that you've ever... And, and who cares about feelings, honestly? But it, it is a great feeling to have, to know that I'm right with God, not because of my works, but because of what Jesus did. But why do I want to flirt with that line? What, what is it in our old nature that we, we like to get right up to the edge of the cliff and we'd like to put our toe over? <laughs> Wherever there's a boundary, human, human nature, our old sinful nature goes. The line is right there. And then we look over and kids do it all the time when they're learning. Parents are watching and then pretty soon they're like, don't you do it again. You've seen a kid do that? I used to do that. And sometimes I still do that. Maybe not physically with the lip hanging out, but I, I can be obstinate in my heart. But hopefully as time goes on, I'm relinquishing control, no longer being a, 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 a stubborn mule, but being a willing participant. And how, how excuse me, how we respond to God's word is important, yes. That includes the Ten Commandments and everything else in the Bible. What, what does it tell us in, um, in Matthew's gospel? Jesus, he tells them, he says, Teacher, uh, uh, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and uh, first and great commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Yes, all the law and the prophets. Isn't that wonderful to consider? All the law. In fact, if you look at the first four commandments, there are our relationship to God, and the, the last six commandments are our relationship toward man. And those things are important. And the law and the prophets pretty much is the, the whole entire word of God. See, on earth, when we are obedient and when we're faithful, we may get a job promotion, we may get a raise in salary, and certainly there's blessings in your home and in your relationships with your spouse and your children, but there's also rewards in heaven. And that may not mean like a big deal to you right now, but I assure you that when you are in glory, it is going to be a big deal to you. But the Bible tells us that there are rewards in heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, says, For we, notice he includes himself, for we must all. That means, in the, in the Greek, it's really wonderful what the word all means. You know what it means? It means all. Yeah, so, <laughs> for we must all appear before the judgment seat or the bema seat. Have you ever heard of that term, bema seat? It's not a judgment of whether you're going to heaven or not, but as believers, we are also going to stand before God and give an account for what we have done while we've been saved, while we have Jesus in our heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But notice this, very important, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So that means that there's going to be people in heaven that have done nothing with their relationship. They get saved, they have their fire insurance, and they're very happy, but they continue living their life like God doesn't exist. Now, if they're truly born again, they're going to go up 
When they die or if the rapture occurs, they're going to go to heaven. But their rewards, they're not going to have very many, if at all. I don't know about you, but I want everything he's got for me. Because with those rewards that I am given, I'm going to take them all and I'm going to place them all at his feet and say, Lord, it's because you were working in me. And of course he knows this. And that'll be worship, won't it? Just to say, Lord, all the things that you've given me, I give back to you because without you in me, none of this would be possible. In fact, I wouldn't even be here if you hadn't have done what you did. So all the glory goes to who? It goes to Jesus Christ. It goes to God. I can't touch it. I can't touch it. Neither would I want to. And I want you to exhort you to give all of your heart to the Lord, to give everything to him and lay aside, as it tells us in Hebrews, every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Do you know that you're in a race? There is a race before us. And if you notice something, the older you get, the, the quicker time seems to go. Isn't it true? I've noticed this in my own life. When I was in my teens, it felt like time was just crawling along. Weeks would go by, and I'm like, wow, it feels like a year. Now a week seems like a year. It just flies by. And I look, and I'm like, I had no idea. How old am I? I'm 90 years old already. Time is flying. It's just going like that. And those of you who are older know exactly what I'm talking about. But we need to run this race that is set before us. And we look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So a living a life of obedience, live a life of obedience and purity. Do you desire righteousness? I hope that you do. I, I really desire righteousness. I'm tired. I, I've seen what my flesh can do. I've been around the block a few times. I understand what this old nature is up to and what it, what it can do and what it's capable of. I'm really done with it. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect because I'm not. I got a lot of work to do. The Lord's got a lot of work to do in me, but I want to live a life of obedience and purity, and I need to starve, and you need to starve and crucify those things in your life that are leading you away from Christ so that you can live the truly blessed life, the life that Christ wants to have for you. Notice in verse 20 back in our text, he says, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and notice that verses 19 and 20 are speaking of believers. And their response to God's commandments. Yes, his commandments. The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. All these things, even in the New Testament, are very valid. It doesn't mean since we're born again that we can just go and do whatever we want. Oh, God will forgive me. Well, if that is your attitude, you've got a really warped sense of grace. Because grace is not licensed to continue in sin. No, grace is God forgiving you when you're being an idiot. And so when I deserve judgment, God says, well, my, and, and I confess it, he's free to forgive me. And he does when I confess. But to the disciples, this seemed like an impossibility because the, the scribes and the Pharisees were the high and mighty ones. They were the ones that everybody looked up to. But Jesus said something really interesting to his disciples. And he said to them, in Matthew 23, he says, Therefore, whoever may, will tell you, uh, excuse me, uh, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, and therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not. Meaning, they talk a lot of talk, but they don't do a lot of walking, what they're saying. And see, that is the difference between you and I. Or, I'm sorry, that's the difference between uh, the walking as a Pharisee and, and, and walking according to the Lord, right? That's what he wants. God wants us to, to observe and to do and not, and not just be do, uh, hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And many people do that. The Bible calls these people hypocrites. They're play actors. And we looked at that last week. Are you one of those people? Are you one of those people that is one way at church but a different way at home and a different, different person on the job site? 
Or is your life consistent? See, God wants to bring consistency in and through your lives. You know, who are you? It's a good question, because as we get into the next section in verses 21 through 30, as we look at murder and adultery, Jesus went beyond the outward expression and looked on the heart, on the internal. And remember, we, we even see this in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, remember when Samuel was speaking to Saul, he says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, God would much rather have obedience than a bunch of bloody sacrifices. He would rather have obedience than sacrifice. Because we can go through the externals. Those are easy. Everybody can do that. You know, it's easy to go through the externals. And even Samuel got stuck in this when he went to Jesse's house, David's father, and God had told Saul or Samuel that he was to go to Jesse's house to anoint one of his sons to be king in place of Saul. And remember, as he looked on, you know, Jesse had eight sons, and seven of them were there before him. And David, the, the little, the young man, was out in the field tending the sheep. And when Samuel saw Eliab, who was the oldest, he thought, this is the guy. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He's got everything going for him. Lord, this must be the guy. This has to be the guy because he's the oldest, he's good looking. And what did the Lord tell him? He says, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And God is always looking not at the externals, but he's looking at the heart. That's why Jesus would say to the uh, you know, the, the, the Pharisees, they did things to be seen by men. But what did Jesus say in Matthew 6, verse 5? He says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you go into your, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who, in the, who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees you in secret will, will reward you openly. That sounds to me like God is more concerned about the internal than the external. It's always about the internal Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43, he says, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush, but a good man out of the treasure, the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So again, it's the internal. What's happening inside here when it manifests itself, when it begins to express itself in the natural, that's where we find out really what's inside. Jesus said, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the man. And these are uh, murderers and evil thoughts and adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things which defile a man. So how can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? When he said that to the disciples, they were floored. How can that happen? Well, they focused on the law and the external, but the law was meant to be a tutor. It was meant to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. In Galatians, it tells us, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. It was our, our tutor, our schoolmaster, that we might be justified by what? By our external works? No, but by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In Romans, Paul tells us, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that. To all and on all who believe. Again, that's faith, isn't it? That's belief. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely, what? By his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation or as a substitute by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance. God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice it's faith. So where is boasting then? It is excluded by what? Law or works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Even Abraham, remember, as God gave him to the, the promises way back in the book of Genesis... This is not just a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament one. In Genesis 15, remember when God gave him this covenant, which we know as the Abrahamic covenant, God says to them, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my household is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will, who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. And notice verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Because he believed on God before he even did anything. He believed what God had said. It is always about belief. It's always about the internal so we exceed the, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees by faith in Jesus Christ, not with the outward things that we do, but by believing in the one who said to believe in him. And we do believe in him. We can't do it in the flesh. We're not capable of doing it in the flesh. That's why in Philippians it would tell us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. To work out what God has placed in. I can't earn it. Don't misunderstand that verse because notice what the next verse says, for it is God who works in you. Yes, work it out, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So therefore, all I got to do is, is by faith, let him live his life through me. Are you willing to do that? That means that I've got to be one with him. That means I've got to stop fighting against him. That means that all the things that I've learned in college, in school, especially concerning morality, need to take a back seat, and I need to hold true to what this says. If this tells me that adultery is a sin, and my college professor says, no, it's not a sin, it's just you express, it's love, love. All you need is love. No. The Bible tells me that adultery is sin, and guess what? Yes, homosexuality is a sin, along with fornication and adultery. It's all a sin. Stealing is a sin. God doesn't have his favorites. And church, we better be careful not to have our favorites either. Because there's a world out there that thinks that we just hate homosexuals. And there are some people, if we're immature in Christ, we can go kind of off the edge a little bit, and we can give the appearance to people outside the church. They think, well, they're just a bunch of bigots. They just hate us. You know what? The real church, the true Christians, the true Bible-believing mature Christians are going to say, we love you. <laughs> However, you need to come to Christ. You need to you need to confess that as sin because that's exactly what it is. We're not going to play games with you on that. You weren't born that way. God doesn't make things like that. I don't care what the PhDs say. And I know why I can say that. I've got the authority of God, and they've got nothing. That's good enough for me. Do you believe that? Because if you don't, you're going to have a lot of problems. Spiritual problems. Because if this is not the final authority, because it is God's word, then anything else, what Fauci says or whatever anybody else says, is going to be your final authority. 
No, I'll go with God, thank you very much. And in my heart, I know it's the truth. In my heart of hearts, I know it's the truth. God man made Adam and Eve. And he developed and instituted marriage between one man and one woman, not between two men, not between two women. God sees that as illegitimate. And I don't care how much they love each other, how much they cry and scream, they're going to fight against God. And if they do not repent, they're going to have a big problem. But see, it's the Lord's heart that they will come to faith. They give their hearts to Christ. And those who have done are living wonderful lives now. They've renounced those things, and now they're married and they have children. Is it because God hates them? No, he loves them. But love has to tell the truth. I have to tell the truth. If I say I'm going to love you, then I'd better tell you the truth, even if you don't like it. Even if you hate me for it, I must tell the truth. And in today we live in, folks, Christians, we have to tell the truth, but do it in love. But we must tell the truth. We can't lie to people anymore. Don't lie to people. That's the, that's the teeth of the gospel. The great news is that Jesus loves you and he died for your sins. Oh, that feels so wonderful. But you're a rotten sinner and you need to repent of your sin. <laughs> that's the teeth. That God does not accept me just who I am in my sin. He accepts me in Christ. And that's why I need to be born again. But it's by faith. For we walk by faith and not by sight. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they walk by sight and not by faith. And even said, Jesus said, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, you Pharisees. You'd, and uh, you justify, um, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. And these you ought to have done not, without leaving the others undone. And so it's belief in God. And notice what he says. He goes on to verse 21 and he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, but whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. We know that murder is a sin. Yes, murder is a sin. You shall not murder. It's the Exodus 20, verse 13. And just because we're saved by grace doesn't mean that we don't adhere to the law. No, that's just the very beginning. Those are just the externals. But now Jesus, have you noticed what he's doing in this, in this passage? He's taking the externals and going, well, that's just the default. <laughs> that's just the default. But I'm more concerned about what motivates you, what's really inside here, because those are the things. Because I might not commit adultery physically, I might not murder somebody physically, but I can do it in my heart. And I can, I can have the adultery in my mind, even though I haven't committed the act. And see the difference? Every one of us could say, well, I've never done those things. God has to accept me. And he's like, um, got a problem. Remember when you were driving down the beach in your fancy red sports car with the, the hood down and you, all these ladies are, are walking along and jogging with their AirPods in their ears? And, and uh, what did you do that day? Oh, I almost got in an accident. Well, why was that? Because your eyes weren't on the road. Your eyes were all over everything else. Adultery in the heart, in the mind. And God doesn't flirt with sin. So it's all about the heart. And we disclose the truth of what is in our heart by the, when we speak, we, we show forth what's really consuming us because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So hang out and chat with somebody for a little while and you find out where their, tre their treasure truly lies and where their heart is really at. But he goes on and he says, but I say to you that whoever is angry without a cause um, and this phrase, with, uh, without a cause, is not in many of the Greek manuscripts. So it could literally say, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, excuse me, which is the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you fools, shall be in danger of hell. We know that it's not a sin to be angry. It's what you do with that anger. Psalm 4 tells us, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your own bed and be still. 
And be angry in Ephesians 4. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And in this passage, there seems to be an escalation of words. Did you ever notice that an escalation of words usually leads to something more, worse, worse? It's like things get ratcheted up. The heat starts rising, and pretty soon people are throwing punches. They're saying really horrible things, and every word out of their mouth is filthy. Have you ever noticed that? Have you seen it? Have you ever done it yourself? Be honest. Raise your hand. Okay, I'm the only one. Okay, that's all right. Thanks, John. You're an honest guy. <laughs> when you get mad and it starts, and that's what's happening here in this list of words, because raka is a term of reproach used among the Jews at that time, which was pretty bad. But notice when he says, if you say you're a fool, you shall be in danger of hellfire. And I, I thought about that, and, and it, it really made me think and if you remember, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Nabal back in 1 Samuel. Nabal was the one who refused David and his men food when David was really protecting him and he didn't even know it. But the man was insolent and his name was Nabal, which in the Hebrew means fool. His name literally meant fool. And it's interesting that the last words, um, this last word about you know, calling somebody a fool if you tell somebody they're a fool, you're in danger of Gehenna. You're in danger of hellfire. And why is that? I started thinking about that. I'm like, why is a, calling somebody a fool that big of a deal, Lord? I've called people, I think, worse things in my life. Why is a fool such a big deal? Well, because what does it say in Psalm 14? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Do you see how much importance God puts on that word? Because there is an escalation of words there. And when you finally get to full, basically you're saying, you don't even know God. You're basically saying no to God, and God is saying, that's the worst possible thing. It's for a person to not know God. To say that there is no God. And words have meanings, and they have consequences, and I'm learning to be careful. What does it tell us in Ecclesiastes? Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven, and, I, and, and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. This is a really great verse for me, because I tend to speak a lot, and I have to be really careful about the words that I choose, because words mean a great deal. With a word, I can, I can really encourage somebody, and with another word, I can cut them so deeply that it would be years before they would even talk to me again. Husbands and wives, when you speak to each other, you remember there is a word you can speak to your husband. Perhaps you heard many years ago, and you're still struggling with it because of, in, a, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of anger, he said or she said something, and it just cut you like nobody's business. And in your heart, you're going, I've never really forgiven them. I still hold a grudge in my heart. You know what? If that has happened to you, if any of you are a victim of that, and you've said something to hurt somebody, especially close to you, would you have a talk with them today and get it right and be done with it? Because all of that, all it's doing is creating a cancer within you. It's festering, and before long, it will, it will, it will all caps, express itself somehow, some way. You gotta get it right. You gotta get it right. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See how what a big deal God's uh, what a big deal it is to God for reconciliation. So before we worship God, we need to get things right with our fellow man, right? <laughs> And the passage I'm about to read is really uncomfortable. In Matthew 6, it says, Jesus said, And forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the model prayer that we, that we, that we read, right? Read that again. Or hear it again. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And then he goes on and says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That hurts. So how big of a deal is it? For you to get right on the horizontal with your fellow man before you get right with the vertical with your heavenly father. It's so important to get these relationships squared away. 
Don't have any bitterness. If there's something in the past that has hurt you, it's better today to get it taken care of. Go to your spouse, go to your neighbor, whatever it is, and say, you know what, I know that I said this many years ago, and I, I said this, and I am totally sorry. It was horrible what I said to you. It wasn't warranted. It was out of, fit of a fit of anger. Will you please forgive me? I am so sorry. And if you do that, most people will be like, you know what, I'm so glad you did because I've never forgiven you. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you should have forgiven them. You probably you should have forgiven them, but you know what? These things happen, and we need, and, and Paul will go on in Romans say, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Leave your gift at the altar and first be reconciled. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are... Um, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison, it's wise to come to an agreement between two conflicting parties before going to the judge because once that judge drops the gavel, there is going to be things that need to be meted out and it's going to be in the law. It's going to be written and you're going to pay every single one of those things, whether it's a sentence of time in jail or even prison, or whether it's a fine. Better to agree with your adversary on the way and work things out before you go into that courtroom. And you know what? Wouldn't it be great if the, if the church could do that instead of taking each other to court? Even if you've been the wrong, even if you've been wrong, to just work it out and be willing to be wronged and get out of the court system. What a horrible witness it is for two believers to be going before an unbeliever screaming and yelling at each other about some money or something you know you owe me five hundred dollars and you know you cheated me out of this and wouldn't it be better just to say you know what before you get in the court say you know what i'm just going to forgive you the 500 bucks you can have it and if you can someday pay it great i release it i'm done and then the Lord does something in that heart. Maybe three years down the road, they come back and you find a five, uh, five $100 bills in your, under, your, uh, under your door. You just never know. But it's better just to, to get it out and, and rather be the wrong. See, we don't like being wronged. Are you willing to be wronged? Even when you're not the one in fault, are you willing just to go, you know what? I, I need to be done with this instead of festering it and allow it to fester in my heart. Jesus goes on to say, again, more hard issues here. He says, you've heard that it was said for those of old, you should not commit adultery, and that is a, a commandment. And adultery in its simplest form is a person having a, a sexual, physical relationship with another person's spouse. That's the definition of it. Jesus said, but I say unto you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Notice, again, the physical, tangible, that's a default. But then he goes further and says, now what about the heart? What about the heart? He takes it right to the heart. And this is the struggle for nearly every man that I know of, if they're honest, and it's caused much strife in marriages and relationships. It's caused divorces and, in some cases, domestic violences, divorce, and even murder. But whoever looks at a woman, and the idea here is, is, a, is a Greek word called, uh, it's blepo is the, is the Greek word, but it's not just look like you would think. It's, it means to look upon, to gaze at. You know what I'm talking about. It's one thing to see, guys, it's one thing to see a woman. Ladies, it's one thing to see a man. But it's a whole other different thing to take a little more time looking at that person and where you're looking and what you're thinking, right? Every man in the room is going, I want to leave the room now because we're all guilty of it. We're all, every one of us. And, most, and women, you are too. And for, unfortunately, we're all guilty of this. Men are a little more obvious they're, they're, they're kind of like the dog who's chasing a squirrel. You know, you know they're kind of like that. If a woman is looking at you guys, you'll probably never know it because they've got so much grace and they're, they've got so much discretion. You'll never know that a woman was ever looking at you. But ladies, it's very obvious when a man is looking at you because he's not so discreet about it, especially in the world. David committed adultery. It says in 2 Samuel that he saw a woman, 
bathing. It was Bathsheba. He saw her. And that's what he did. He didn't just see her, he saw her. And you know what I'm talking about. But Job goes even further and he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? And every man in this room, we need, and ladies too, we need to make a covenant with our eyes. We need to make a covenant with our eyes. And adultery is not just something physical. It's in the mind And it could be a progression. I believe that anyone who is even dating or seeing somebody who is married is on the path and committing adultery. You may not be physically involved in it, but there is certainly spiritual and emotional adultery. That communion and investing in somebody else and their life, when that life, that communion belongs to them and their spouse, you have no right, no business dating or spending emotional time with somebody who is married. You are on very shaky ground. At the very least, you're committing fornication or adultery in your mind, and um, you, need to, you need to get out of that situation immediately because adultery is betrayal of the worst kind. It's the most painful Do not flirt around with a married person. Run away from that. I don't care how good looking he or she is. You are breaking up a a marriage. And if they have kids, you are hurting those kids. There is so much damage that happens here. My mom and my brother, as you know, they were, they were, they're both retired now, but they were in law enforcement all their lives. And I heard the many, many stories of these domestic abuses. And usually it was adultery or cheating on somebody. People would be killing each other when they found out somebody had, their wife had cheated on them. And it, many times, not all the time, but many times it does lead to murder. So how serious is it? God knows how serious it is. That's why he tells us to stay away from that. It doesn't take very much, and when you've got a jealous husband or a jealous wife that you've been messing with, you better be careful. <laughs> you better be really careful. I would advise you today to break it off and never speak to them again. If you do not, you will pay the price. You will pay the price. It doesn't just hurt you and the other person Adultery hurts the other person's spouse and that other person and their children, even their grandchildren, not to mention the possibility of STDs and monkeypox and AIDS and many other uh, things that are going on. You are in trouble if you're flirting with this and you need to stop today because you're in sin and God is going to hold you accountable to that. So turn today. Do not waste any time. Break it off today. And he goes on, and aren't you glad you came this morning? (laughs) And then Jesus, and I have to have a little levity here because everyone's going, oh my gosh, I want to leave this place now. He's speaking right to me. Actually, it's not me, it's God. That's his word. (laughs) But Jesus goes on a little further, and this is even more exciting and frightening. If your right eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you, that one of your members perish, then your whole body to be cast into hell. Yes, Gehenna, the, the, the lake of fire. That's what he's speaking of. It'd be better for you to take out your eye, if that's what's causing you to sin, than to, have, than to go to hell. And yes, hell is very real. In Revelation, it tells us that hell is very real. This is where, the ultimately, where you will be judged, where an unbeliever, an unbeliever will be judged. They will be cast into outer darkness because of these things that they're doing. It would be better, if you're an unbeliever, it would be better for you to cut off your hands and pluck out your eyes if those things are causing you to sin. And of course, it can still happen in the heart, right? We know that's true. But Jesus isn't saying to cut off your hands. He's not saying to literally pluck out your eyes, but he's saying, will you take it that seriously? Will you take it that seriously, what you're doing? Because we need to take it that seriously because what we do with these eyes and these hands, if they lead us down the road to perdition, we better do something drastic. And again, he's not saying cut off your hands and pluck out your eyes, but you'd better think of it that way. You'd better take it that serious. 
And then he goes on, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And of course, we know that that's not the case. Meaning, we know it's not the, he doesn't really want you to cut off your hands, but we do need to take it seriously. We need to take sin seriously. So train your eyes and your thoughts, family. Train your eyes and your thoughts. Because I know this for a fact, that the more you give in to the lust of the eyes, the more power lust will have over you. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire. You will constantly be keeping that fire ignited. But the more you deny the lust of the eye, the easier it will be for you when the temptation comes and it won't have a mastery over you. So turn away from those things. It tells us in Philippians, and I love this, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, and here's one thing to consider. Instead of dwelling on the evil things, Think whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, and whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Yes, you have to train your mind and your heart again. You have to train your heart and your mind. But I promise you this, because I'm doing it myself and have, you know, I'm not finished by any means, but I don't, I, I don't look at that stuff. I mean, I, I'm doing, I'm working at these things. Every man in this room knows what I'm talking about, and most women. You've got to train your eyes and your mind. And there's nothing wrong with seeing a woman. Because I can look at a woman, and I can see her for who she is, but I'm, that's all I'm seeing. I'm, I'm seeing a child of God. I'm not, in my mind, doing other things. I'm not staring at her. I'm not gawking at her. Do you follow? And it's a wonderful thing when you realize you know what, I can look at this person, even though she's beautiful, whoever it may be, I can look upon them and I'm not totally twisted in my head. Our culture doesn't understand that. Our culture has given into that completely. So you're a rare breed if you can do that. But I would encourage you to train your heart, train your eyes, because by doing so, Little by little, that desire, that temptation, that lust is going to slowly die out. But trust me, if you feed it, it's going to be an inferno. And that's why you see people doing awful things, horrible things. Mostly it's men. But even now, some women, because our culture is so debased, Jesus finally goes, so yeah, it's an issue of the heart. Jesus goes on in verse 31. He says, furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. It's interesting that one, um, one leading teacher in Israel uh, has taught, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled or his dinner by placing too much salt on his food, if she went in public with her head uncovered, if she talked with men in the streets, if she were a brawling woman. I don't know how many of you women are brawling, but um, if she was a brawling woman, if she spoke disrespectfully of her parents, uh, her husband's parents in his presence, or if she were troublesome or quarrelsome. And one rabbi even taught that a man could divorce his wife if he found another woman more attractive than his wife. But what does Jesus say? There's one reason that you can divorce your wife, if you so choose, and that's because of adultery or fornication. That's the only reason that God says, you are, if you choose to do that, then you're justified. And that's the only justification that there is. Jesus says, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And, he, and Jesus said, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so God takes marriage seriously. He hates divorce. In Malachi, what does it tell us? For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. 
And many people have gotten or been divorced for reasons other than adultery and have been remarried. In these situations, God can forgive. He can forgive somebody who is divorced for wrong reason. It's not, a, it's not the sin that's going to send you to hell. You confess it as sin and, and you move on. And some people have had a divorce for other reasons and, and now they're living happily and, and everything is wonderful. Well, you know what? Then you continue and serve the Lord and, and, and love her and love him the way they ought to be. But it's never been that. His initial, initial design was never for that. Everything can be worked out. And some have even said, you know what? Even though you have committed adultery on me, I forgive you. I don't want to divorce you. We got three wonderful kids. We got two wonderful kids. We got one child, whatever it may be. And we've got this home. And there are men and women that have done that. And I tell you what, <laughs> they could have divorced, but they decided to forgive and to move on. But don't let that other person continue in that sin. And the person who has been hurt by that, it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time to build that trust and to heal from that wound that's so incredibly deep. Oh my goodness. It's the worst breach possible. And yet there are people who have said, I choose to forgive you and I want to work it out. And the other spouse who committed the adultery says, I am not worthy. And they aren't. Because by God's definition, she has every right, or he has every right to divorce based on that. But how great is that when God allows something like that and both people are willing to continue to fight, not, not fight physically, but to go through this together and work it out and to build the trust and to build the, the, the intimacy again, and it takes time. And they go for it. I've seen it myself, and it's the most glorious thing you've ever seen because that is unusual. But if you're able to do it, praise the Lord. If God's given you the grace, then do it, because that's by far better to do. But let not that person who committed the adultery ever do it again. Because you may not have that same grace the second time. He or she may say, you know what? You did it the first time, and I, I, I bared my heart to you. I cried my eyes out. I struggled with trusting you. You do it again, I'm done. So don't play games with it. Don't play games with it. Take marriage seriously and don't treat it as a transient promise like people in Hollywood do. They, they change spouses like they change their shoes. And young people, I want to encourage you to take your time. Take your time. Don't be in any big rush and big yank to get married. Yes, I get it, the hormones, I get it. I had them too when I was younger, and I, and I totally get it. But take your time. Better to find the spouse that God has for you under the right direction, under the right circumstances, than for you to make a mistake. Trust me, you are better off, better off waiting and praying and waiting and doing it right. Do it right. Do not mess around. Do it right. And go to the altar, both of you virgins, <laughs> I've seen some of the most glorious weddings in this church where two young people have gotten married and both of them have never been with anybody in, in, their, in their life. And they have come up here and it's been one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. It's beautiful and God is all over it. <laughs> He's all over it. He can't help himself. He sees something like that, and he's like, my stamp of approval. And there is joy. There is such great joy. I love it. So take your time. Be patient. Don't be in a rush. We're going to take communion off. The worship team could come on up. And I want to leave you with a proverb before we worship. And it's applicable to today's message. Solomon wrote it, one of the wisest men in the world, and yet 
Even in his wisdom, he engaged in all kinds of things to prove that God's word is ultimately true. He said this, and this is something that we all need to really consider. A very simple verse, Proverbs 4.23. It says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The issues of life, everything that we've talked about so far are the issues, some of them. And probably the most front and center in our culture right now. I could have spent a whole other hour on this, or two or three actually. But it's serious business, folks. Keep your heart, guard it, guard your heart with all diligence. Guard it. Guard your eye gate, guide your ear gate, guide everything you put your hands to. Keep your heart, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And every one of us is touched by the same thing, one way or another, somewhere, given time and opportunity, you are all, we are all going to be experiencing the very same thing, be in the same circumstances. There's nothing under the sun that's not going to come your way, or has come your way, or will come your way, but your attitude of how you prepare your heart now is tantamount. It is the most important thing. Encourage you with all of my heart, folks, church, let's live lives of purity. Let's take our relationships seriously with our spouses. Let's love them. And let's not flirt with anything anymore. Let's not flirt with it. Just be done with it. And when you fall, if you fall, when you fall, do you throw in the towel? No, you confess it and you fight through it and you keep fighting and you keep fighting and you never stop fighting and you continually give your heart to Christ and let him shape you and mold you. It's a beautiful, hard, difficult process for us. But God is in it for the long haul. Are you in it for the long haul? Are you willing? I'm willing. Lord, do it. Amen? Amen. As the worship team begins, just feel free to come on up and grab the elements, take them back to your chair, and we'll take it together, okay? Paul the Apostle, as he wrote to the Corinthians, he said in chapter 11, verse 23, he says, For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Notice, he receives something, he's giving it. I love that. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, the, the, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do in, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We proclaim it. He died for us, folks. And here is the symbol of his body being broken on the cross. Let's partake. And again, he, he passed the cup around. And he said, this is the, the new covenant of my blood. And Jesus said that hours before he would actually accomplish it. And yet, to him, it was as if it had already come to pass. He knew it was coming. It was for this purpose that he came into the world. It didn't shock him. He was no martyr. He willingly laid down his life. And so we take this, the very blood of God. Do you understand that? More than any, people have been crucified throughout history, but there's only one who was on the cross whose blood was holy. If you look into, we look at this around Christmas time, but there was no blood of a human. It was the very blood of God. The blood between the mother and the, and the child doesn't mix. Do you know that? And Joseph had nothing to do with it. So whose blood was that? It was the very blood of God, and that's the blood that was shed. That's why his sacrifice is sufficient once for all. 
We don't do this to reenact that. We do this in remembrance of what he has already done that we believe in. And his sacrifice is what holds us. His sacrifice is what holds us in his hand. And no one on earth above or on earth below can pluck us out of his hand. Aren't you blessed? Aren't you thankful for that? So let's take this in rejoicing in what he has done for us, having communion with him. Praise the Lord. If you could do me a favor, if you could take these little things and bring them with you when you get up and by the doors as you leave, you can put those in the trash containers. That'd be really helpful because ants really love this stuff if it's left behind and we don't see it for a week. They really like it a lot. We don't want to give them that much excitement, okay? So um, if you could do that, please. Let's stand and let's pray. Thank you for your patience, by the way. Lord, we thank you for this part of the scripture. Lord, it has really ground me to powder. (laughs) And no doubt, Lord, it's ground most of us, if not all of us, to powder, Lord. And that's a good thing. Lord, if we're serious about it, it's meant to do that. And Lord, you share these things, Lord, not to be, not because you have displeasure with us, Lord, but to warn us, even as children of God, Lord, that we never should be anywhere near any of this stuff. Lord, give us a great desire and the, the fortitude, Lord, the strength spiritually to resist these things and to not entangle ourselves with these things. And when and if we do, Father, we know that it's not all it's not all doom and gloom, Father, because we can, we can come to you, and Lord, your promise is still true after all these years. If we confess our sins, you are faith, faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord, and we do fail. But Lord, we ask that you would give us a heart to really to follow you and to love you and to let you do it through us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.